Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, July 23rd. My name's Arden Zwelling. I'm here with Ben Nicholson Smith and our producer, Christian Ryan, who has done real yeoman's work on this week's podcast. So please do give him a follow at Christian Ryan NS on Twitter. This has been a bit of a Frankenstein podcast for us this week. Uh, we actually recorded an entire one on Wednesday and then in classic ATL fashion had breaking news just completely kibosh our best laid plans. So we're back here now on Thursday just to update with some recent Blue Jays news on the top half of this episode. Then the back half, Ben and I are going to get to our over-unders for the 2020 season. Much anticipated over-unders for uh, this crazy year that we are going to see. Lots of interesting stuff in there. Always like it when you guys play along and send us your over unders on twitter and and you know how things are are going for you what your predictions are love to see that uh but ben we gotta start off the top with where the hell this toronto blue jays team is gonna play its games they thought they were gonna play in toronto no said the federal government they thought they were going to play uh in pittsburgh no said the pennsylvania state government now they think they might be able to play in baltimore and share camden park with the Orioles, who appear to be on board with the plan. But again, government, public health officials are going to have the final say in this. To what degree of confidence or certainty, Ben, do you feel talking about this, even just discussing this right now is so much up in the air? Oh, very, very low. I mean, I'm not going to say that you jinxed us yesterday, Arden, but somewhere in the archives of At The Letters, there is a podcast where we say, hey, like this is the one time that we actually have some certainty. <laughs> we actually we actually have an answer. We know where the Blue Jays are going to be playing. It's PNC Park. And man, we thought that we knew and we didn't. And honestly, it's not just us. It's not just our listeners. I think the Toronto Blue Jays themselves believed that they were going to be playing at PNC Park only to be told, as you said, by the Pennsylvania government that that was not going to be the case. So yeah, right now, as we record this, we don't know. And it's really just in step with everything that's happened in this 2020 season. Everything's been up in the air. There's a pandemic that's still happening. It's totally, totally in flux. They are making these things up on the fly and trying to come up with answers. But the the search for those answers is proving to be very, very difficult. Yeah, we'll see if the Blue Jays get that uh, clearance in Maryland to be able to play in Baltimore. You know, you have to worry about the same problem arising as did in, in Pennsylvania, in which state public health officials and the government just aren't willing to take on the risk. Could it be different in Maryland opposed to Pennsylvania, perhaps? Because, you know, the Orioles are already ticketed for trips to hot spots like Florida. So Maryland is already accepting some of that risk. And obviously that was a really big problem for Pennsylvania was those trips to Florida and, and to Georgia to play the Braves. But, you know, from a just from a pure public health and governmental perspective, by bringing the Blue Jays into Baltimore and into Camden Yards, you are still essentially doubling your risk from the risk you already are taking on with the Orioles. And you're also adding a second team to a ballpark. And if we know anything about this virus, it's that any time that you congregate large groups of people in one place, it typically is bad, particularly if those people are traveling back and forth from places where the virus has not been contained and mitigated to the degree that it has where you exist. So I have my suspicions. You know, I am skeptical. We're going to see how this plays out. But I think the one way we can at least talk about this, Ben, 
is just what the impact will be on the Blue Jays in going on what is essentially going to be a 60 game road trip, regardless of where their home ballpark ends up being, regardless if they end up having a home ballpark. Is there any way we can quantify just how much of a disadvantage that will be to the Blue Jays and what kind of impact that'll have on wins and losses? Because they're, you know, all I know for certain is that there is no way to point this as anything but a disadvantage. Yeah, exactly. You could dissect it a lot of different ways and you could arrive at different conclusions. And, you know, honestly, if someone said that this is a, a huge disadvantage and, and that the Blue Jays, by virtue of having no home park and playing permanently on the road and even giving their opponents more home dates, like that is potentially a, a big disadvantage. Uh, you could also argue that it's a small disadvantage and that these guys are used to travel and that if any group of people is able to withstand two months on the road away from their families and away from their homes and the comforts that you might normally have during a regular season, you could say that it's professional baseball players who are constantly on the move and they're constantly getting claimed on waivers or traded or assigned to a different roster and they still are expected to perform. But regardless of where you land on that question, it is absolutely a negative, as you said. Like it's in talking to people in the game, it's a subject of a lot of fascination from outside the Blue Jays and from within the Blue Jays. It's like this sucks, and and no one can come out and say that officially because that's not the kind of leadership that the Blue Jays want. But you know, I think if you were asking people honestly, the the, the answer is this really sucks. You know, it, it's not a good situation at all. This is a situation that the Blue Jays are not in because of their own doing. I think it's worth saying that this is a byproduct of a very, very slow agreement between the players and owners that then delayed the process of trying to get approval from the federal government by a very long time. So the Blue Jays could only really start lobbying the federal government and the Toronto government in any sort of formal way pretty late in the process. Like that happened in June as opposed to in May. And it wasn't even the very beginning of June. So the Blue Jays were already starting late. The Canadian government made a decision that's pretty reasonable and, and understandable. And then the Pennsylvania government did as well. And it's just this cascading process that leaves the Blue Jays homeless. And, you know, I don't know, Arden, if you've kind of landed on a number of, of wins or, or losses, you think that this will impact the Blue Jays by... But the one thing that I think everyone would agree on is that it sends them down as opposed to up in the win column. Yeah, a couple of things on that. One, you're right. This is this is no fault of the Blue Jays' own. This is like first and foremost the fault of the United States and several of those states completely failing to mitigate and contain this virus and in some cases just appearing not to care about even putting their best foot forward in doing so that is why Canadian public health officials said no like you cannot travel back and forth between Toronto and hotspots like we can't have you do that and the fact that the Blue Jays home base is here in Toronto in a place where health officials weren't willing to do that and the fact that their kind of secondary home is in Dunedin in Florida, in the raging epicenter of the virus. Those are really, really unfortunate circumstances. And that is why the Blue Jays are where they are right now, because those would be their two best options. And those two best options, they cannot go to. And I even think that if Baltimore falls through 
And if the Blue Jays can't find a major league ballpark to play in, I think they would go to Buffalo over Dunedin just because of the case numbers there and just because it would be safer from a player health perspective. And obviously Salem Field and Buffalo need some pretty significant infrastructure upgrades in order to make that happen. Like we've both been there. That clubhouse is way too small. Um, And you need a visiting team clubhouse as well that's up to major league standards. You need an umpire's room. You need replay infrastructure and player tracking and lights that, you know, are of broadcast quality and that are LED and are going to illuminate the field. Um, Remember, baseball is a TV product this year. So the broadcast has to be on point. So I think if the Blue Jays ended up having to go to Buffalo, you'd probably see them having to do something with the beginning part of their schedule where after they open the season on the road in Tampa Bay and in Washington, they stay in Washington for that back half two games of that home and home and then maybe they go play the philly games that they're supposed to host in philadelphia and then they go back on the road obviously to atlanta and boston so that would buy everybody some time until like the middle of august to upgrade that infrastructure but i would think that is like the so what right now we're on plan c with baltimore essentially so that would be maybe the plan d or the the plan e if it got to that but yeah not no no fault of the blue jays own but they are going to suffer for this and they are going to be at a disadvantage for this. And it's hard to put like a loss total on that. But I think that the Blue Jays will incur lost games because of this. And I think it could be anywhere from like just one to two more losses than we would expect to as many as four to five if things really go pear-shaped. I mean, you got to remember... Your modern MLB athlete is accustomed to certain luxuries and a certain lifestyle that I know a lot of people will, you know, groan about and, you know, call them pampered and stuff like that. But like that's this is what it is in 2020 MLB baseball. Players are used to having access to batting cages and bullpen mounds and weight rooms and trainers rooms in order to put themselves in the best shape possible to play this game. They're used to having access to hot tubs and cold tubs and conditioning equipment, rehab facilities in order to recover from the games. So I think the Blue Jays are going to be at a disadvantage when it comes to both preparing for and recovering from games. And that's not to mention their lives away from the field when they're going to be living out of a suitcase in a hotel room for like six to eight weeks. Maybe they will be seeing their families. Maybe they won't. Right now they have they can't even tell their families like where they're going to be and where to meet them. It's going to be that much harder just to check out from like the baseball grind and mentally decompress. And I think that there will be somewhat of a psychological toll that is paid there when players just don't have that personal space away from the game in which they can relax. Yeah, even think about it on the level of what kind of text messages are you getting if you're on the Cincinnati Reds? Like maybe it's, hey, like, you know, good luck with the season, like excited to see what you guys can do. If you're a member of the Toronto Blue Jays, the text messages that you're getting from people around the game are like, whoa, where are you guys playing? What's going to happen? You know, your family's asking you those questions. Your friends are asking you those questions. You're asking yourself those questions and you have no idea. So your attention, it would have to be diverted from the task at hand, which is performing at a very peak level. You are trying to beat the Atlanta Braves and the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. And that's not an easy thing to do, even if you are fully focused on the task at hand. If you have these distractions, then it's not going to be any easier. And furthermore, there are those little things that go into a player's day. And to me, it's just hard to imagine that whether it's 
you know, the location of the weight room or even is the massage table going to be ready? We're talking about some pretty significant construction projects in a week's time here and it's a pandemic. So I don't know that we can simply assume that if the Blue Jays are starting play at Camden Yards, that the weight room will just be ready for them or that the second clubhouse will just be perfectly ready to go or that the Wi-Fi will be working. I mean, these things will likely work, but I I also have to think that in the course of all these preparations, something could get overlooked, something could get delayed. We don't know what exactly, but there's no guarantee that once the Blue Jays pick a home, it's just smooth sailing and they just set up and, and off we go. I mean, it's a very stark contrast between the caliber of facilities that major league teams are used to right now they're going to have to make something up on the fly and is something that the nine other teams within their kind of pool that they're playing in this season are not going to have to deal with and their athletes are not going to have to deal with that and even 29 other teams and you know basically any athlete in uh the major leagues who doesn't wear a toronto blue jays uniform is not going to have to deal with these challenges so the blue jays are clearly at a disadvantage you know like i this is the one time when i will like buy into like that you know that premise that we've all heard over the years that you know american players don't always want to come to canada to play for the blue jays yeah uh, i will buy into it in this case you know because like, usually right it's like you get these flimsy reasons right it's like uh, you know i can't get espn in my hotel room or you know the money's a different color or it's too cold or whatever and i would push back against that so hard right like you know, world-class city, weather's great in the summer, et cetera. But what the Blue Jays are going through right now is a very real scenario in which players are dealing with adverse circumstances that their colleagues south of the border are not. No other team is going to live out of a suitcase in a hotel for, for six to eight weeks. Preparation is going to be impacted. Recovery is going to be impacted. Sleep is going to be impacted. We all know how, how important sleep is for athletes. Um, it's going to be harder to get a, you know, really a restful night's sleep with all of these circumstances around you being as unideal as they are. No other team in baseball doesn't know the location of the game they're playing in six days. So like, I'm not saying it's like the greatest adversity these guys will ever face in their lives, but I am saying that they are at a very real disadvantage to their competition. It has adjusted my expectations for this team downwards. Before this, I might have said, yeah, the Blue Jays could like flirt with 500, you know, they could get to 28, 29 wins. Right now I have them at 26 wins for the season because of everything that's happening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you said it right there. It's it's opening day of the season as we record this and the Blue Jays don't know where they're playing their home games. Like that's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's actually crazy. The season is starting. They have no idea where they're playing their home games. It's something else. I mean, this season is obviously the weirdest season I've ever witnessed or contemplated. It's It's so far off the wall and this just adds to it even more for the team that we cover. Not only the players, but the coaches, the, the club staff, like somebody on the team has to send all their bats and gloves everywhere and everybody's luggage somewhere and has no idea where that's going. You know, I just think for everybody in the organization, this is an incredibly stressful time and we are going to see how it impacts the players on the field. But uh, that doesn't lessen the, the impact that it's going to have on coaches, support staff, Everybody who tries to help a major league team win as many games as possible. This is a very, very challenging time 
for the organization, I feel for a lot of people in the organization who are going through this. Let's talk quickly about the Blue Jays opening day roster. We don't know where they're going to play on July 29th, but we do know who is going to be on that team, or at least who's going to be on the team on, on July 24th when, when the club opens in Tampa Bay. Not a surprise to see Nate Pearson not on this roster for reasons that we can get to. He's on the taxi squad. But before we do the Pearson conversation, anything else that stuck out to you on the roster that you would like to talk about before we get to the elephant in the room? Right. Yeah, I think what would stand out to me would be the presence of guys like Thomas Hatch and Santiago Espinal. I think both the recent trade acquisitions, Hatch for David Phelps last summer, Espinal for Steve Pierce two years ago, and both can contribute. I mean, Espinal looked pretty good. You saw him a lot at Rogers Center, Arden, and it yeah. seemed like he was he was really uh, showing well and obviously had a good season in the, in the minor leagues last year. And then Hatch is one of those guys we've talked about who normally would be a starting pitcher but might be able to really impress in shorter relief stints. I mean, the Jays have other guys who can kind of soak up innings if they need, but I'm excited to see Hatch in a short burst, you know, one, two innings, see what he can do. So those are the two guys that, to me, are are the most interesting as far as additions to the roster that weren't necessarily sure things. Yeah, good for those guys because they're guys who have been kind of grinding through the big leagues for a long time. Like these aren't like, you know, 21, 22 year old prospects. Like these are like mid 20s guys, like 25, 26. For, so good for them getting some big league time. Good for them getting to show what they can do at the next level. Very interested to see how they both can perform because like none of these guys have like Nate Pearson potential. Uh, you know, like their best outcome is like MLB regular. You cheer for guys like that, right? Like guys who have a harder road to the big leagues and guys who, you know maybe not everything comes as easily for them so like i'm and i think they're both really talented and for thomas hatch like i kind of wonder if he fits in as a bit of a piggyback with anthony k because with ryan brucky on the taxi squad which by the way was probably the most interesting thing to me because i thought ryan brucky really impressed in camp and i kind of you know him and anthony k my understanding was they were like neck and neck for a spot in the blue jays rotation he ends up on the taxi squad so i kind of wonder if k and hatch end up sort of piggybacking for you know in in one of these starts for the blue jays k and barucki is a piggyback like doesn't make as much sense because they're both lefties so k and hatch you kind of get that like lefty and righty neither of them has to you know try to turn a lineup over three times i kind of wonder if that's how things will work in the blue jays rotation out of the gate yeah it's interesting i could see that and i i do share your assumption that K will be that number five. I mean, I think he was clearly ahead of, say, a Yamaguchi or a Wagus pack. So K expected to break in that fifth spot. That would leave Trent Thornton as the number four starter, and then Shoemaker, Roark, and Ryu as the top three in that rotation. So pretty respectable rotation, all things considered. And they do have some decent depth behind it. I mean, Baraki, <laughs> you know, and then obviously Nate Pearson. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a nice little one-two to have on your taxi squad there. So it's a stark contrast to last year, right? I mean, it's so much, it's, uh, in so many ways, this year's totally different. But last year, they just had nothing in the rotation. It was just, it was completely papering it over all year long. Too much clay buckles, too much Edwin Jackson too much everything except for you know I guess Marcus Stroman was pretty good but this is this is actually a respectable starting rotation 
The other note that I do want to point out, um, you know, Jordan Romano making it in, in the bullpen, and that is a name that we've all been talking about a lot more recently. Um, and that is a guy who I've been following for a long time and who I am really excited to see uh, this year at the big league level because I think, like, he just looks like a different guy on the mound than he has in recent seasons. Like, it's a different mindset, a different mentality, and the stuff is that much better after a really productive offseason that he spent working uh, with some guys that you've been talking to at Kinetic Pro down there in, in Tampa. And like you had that great piece on, on Sportsnet about some of the work that those guys are doing to help guys like Romano and Nate Pearson get better and get the most out of their arms. Um, I've written a bit about that as well. Very interested to see his progress. And then the other thing in the bullpen I would point out, AJ Cole and Brian Moran make the roster both non-roster invitees. So those are guys who would have to be added to the 40 in order to get on this team. But we didn't hear about any corresponding 40-man roster rules. And this kind of follows the same vein as something we've been talking about on this podcast for the last few weeks with just some of the like just mysterious roster moves that we're being seen made in this age of the pandemic. You know, uh, So to get those guys onto the 40-man roster without corresponding moves being being announced one presumes one possible explanation for that is that players who are on the COVID-19 related injured list do not count against the team's 40-man roster so that would suggest that of the group of Blue Jays who are currently on the injured list for undisclosed reasons which includes Jonathan Davis, Brandon Drury, Wilmer Font, and Elvis Luciano one presumes that some of those individuals are on the COVID-19 related injured list. That would be how you could open up that 40-man roster room in order to add non-roster guys. But I also should reiterate that being on the COVID-19 related injured list does not mean that you have tested positive for the virus. You can end up on that list by being contact traced, by you know having exposure to somebody who has tested positive for the virus, by simply having symptoms. You can end up on that list. So... Again, there is a lot of kind of roster machinations here, Ben, that are a a bit shrouded in mystery. Right. We're so used to seeing the corresponding move. But as you say, in in these cases, it's basically you see one half of it and you can kind of guess the other half. I I think when you look at this roster as a whole and a guy like Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is able to break camp with the team um, instead of starting on the injured list, you know, knock on wood, and this could change within, you know, hours, let alone days, but as this stands, this roster, relatively speaking, is is pretty healthy. I mean, you look at other other teams around Major League Baseball, whether it's you know guys like Freddie Freeman, who I know is on the upswing, or Aroldis Chapman, or DJ LeMahieu. There are a lot of teams in in baseball that are breaking camp uh, with you know limited contributions from some key players, or or in some cases like Chapman, they won't be able to start the season. So in contrast to that, this Blue Jays team, uh, under the circumstances. I'm sure they're crossing their fingers and holding their breath, but this is where you'd want to be. No mystery around the fact that Nate Pearson is not on the Blue Jays opening day roster. Ben, the Blue Jays have started his season on the three-man taxi squad, which is sort of a creative way to keep him around the big league club, keep him working with Pete Walker, keep him working with your training staff, and and just in a, a major league environment while not selecting him to the roster and starting his service clock which is what this is all about. If you are trying to field the best 30 players that you have in your organization, the best 15 pitchers that you have in your organization, Nate Pearson is obviously among them. If this is a strict meritocracy, Nate Pearson is on this team. Baseball, unfortunately, Ben, not always 
maybe not even often, a meritocracy. Yeah, and let's start there because that is the the most important piece. I think Nate Pearson belongs on this team. You look around baseball at top prospects in a in a year where you have thirty man rosters. Like the idea of not including these guys when there's no minor league alternative, you have so much space. It's it's really unfortunate for the game. It's unfortunate for fans who deserve to be entertained by the best players that exist. It's unfortunate for the players themselves. But we all know these are the rules. This is the agreement that the players and owners have unfortunately agreed to and, and, and repeatedly uh, included within their collective agreement. So this is the system that they exist in. And with that being the case, the Blue Jays decided that... They would rather have a full year of Nate Pearson in 2025, 26, I forget which one, rather than rostering him right out of the gate this season. And from a pure business standpoint, it's the right decision. I mean, it's it's the decision that I would make if, if I was in that seat. I think it's unfortunate, obviously, but you can't allow, and I, I counted the days uh, recently to figure out exactly how many days Pearson would have to spend in the minors before the Blue Jays can be assured that he won't get a full year of service time in 2020. And it's only five days. So as long as Pearson spends the first series against the Rays and two games against the Nationals away from, or it's not even away from the team, but off of the active roster, then the Blue Jays get that full extra year. And the comparison is, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You're going to take the year as opposed to those five days and potentially one appearance from Nate Pearson. So it's unfortunate. It's not surprising. This is the state of baseball in 2020. Yeah, any prudent front office makes this decision as much as I like hate the decision as much as I think the people in the front office like hate that they have to make this decision because look like everybody loses in this scenario, right? Like Nate Pearson loses out on development time. If he was starting Toronto's second or third game of the season, that's valuable development time. Look at what we saw happen to him at Fenway Park when he pitched that exhibition game the other night against the Red Sox. He takes the mound and his mechanics are all messed up, right? His back leg wasn't staying straight in his delivery. That was, you know, uh, hampering his fastball command. He wasn't able to put, you know, the, the ball where he needed it to be and it didn't have the same life. It hurt his velo because he started trying to like aim the pitch and like just to get it over the plate. Now his velo's down, his fastball's not moving as much and Mitch Moreland is like putting it, you know, 400 feet over the right field wall. What a crazy experience that had to be for him. He's never faced adversity like that against a big league lineup. He's never faced a big league lineup before like that. So he learned from that. What does he do? He leans on his slider. He leans on his changeup. He uses his off speed to navigate his way through an order and continue to get outs while he figures out what's going on with his mechanics. And while he talks to Pete Walker and Danny Jansen in between innings and he, you know, kind of searches for like, what do I need to do to get my fastball back? He keeps getting outs. Lo and behold, in his like third or fourth inning, he figures it out. It's his back leg. He corrects the mechanic he makes the adjustment within the game and all of a sudden the fastball is like 98 and it's moving all over the place and he's getting swing and miss and strikeouts and he looks like the nate pearson that we all expect him to be think about what like a valuable learning experience that is and developmental opportunity that is like that's what you want a player like that going through right now is like learning these lessons at the big league level there is a lot of value there and nate pearson is going to miss out on one of those opportunities this week and the club obviously has to do it 
but he hurts for that. Like he loses in this scenario. The club loses in this scenario because they're not fielding their most competitive team. You're not putting your most competitive team on the field in a 60 game season. You are not doing your best, your absolute best to compete this year. We lose fans lose because we don't get to watch Nate Pearson. Like we don't get to see this super talented pitcher compete at the highest level and baseball loses Baseball loses because it's not putting its best product on the field because some of its best players are not playing at the highest level of the sport. So everyone loses in this scenario. I don't think anyone feels good about this conclusion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that one point is just worth repeating, right? Some of the best baseball players in the world are not playing in the major leagues right now because of this rule. So that's just not a good rule. And it's weird how, you know, when you look at the conversation around this, which has changed a lot, I would say in the last 10 or 15 years to the point where, you know, initially it probably flew under the radar entirely. And then when this, this became, I think a bit more publicly known, let's say 10 years ago, I I remember Matt Wieters coming up. I remember Bryce Harper coming up and with those Steven Strasburg, with those guys, it was always a question. The service time was always always a question and teams had to answer for it, which is good. And it did lead to some outrage. But I wonder now if it's almost become so routine for teams to do this, that the players don't necessarily object as hard. The fans don't necessarily object. The media, I mean, we're obviously part of this too, don't necessarily object quite as much. So I think it is worth just saying like Nate Pearson's one of the best baseball players in the world. He's not on the roster because of, of this rule and the Blue Jays' decision to adhere to it. They don't have to adhere to it. They're choosing to adhere to it. It is the right baseball decision, but th- there is another path. They could act like the Braves did with Jason Hayward or the way the Padres did in the past with some of their top prospects, including Paddock. So I think that it is disappointing. Ultimately, I think Pearson's development suffers a little bit because of this, and it's uh, it's a tricky situation to, to navigate for the Blue Jays, but I think ultimately this decision probably wasn't all that hard for them. Yeah, I mean, you can make some, some pretty easy arguments against the move in that, look, the CBA is likely to be torn up after next season anyway. So, like, well, the service time rules that you are, like, playing by now and, try, you know, the service time you're trying to manipulate now might be completely different um, in a couple of years. You could also just make a very simple argument that, like, baseball is about winning. Like, you're supposed to be trying to do everything that you can to win. And this does not give your team the best opportunity to win. Um, so like that, it's just kind of runs counter to like the whole purpose of this entire thing to the entire exercise of the sport. Two things can be true, right? Like, as, like you said, it can be the best baseball decision, but it can also be bad for baseball. Like those two things, like, we're, you know, this is not mutually exclusive, like, cause you just look at it from this front office's perspective and you think, look, like before the pandemic in a 162 game season, the Blue Jays were already incentivized to do this, right? They, they already had tremendous incentives to do it. And then you shorten the amount of time at which you actually have to hold them off of the roster. So now they are even more incentivized because it's like, even fewer days that you have to hold them down, particularly during a season in which this club is not expected to contend, in which it's not like you are the favorites to win the American League East or like to even secure a wild card spot in a pretty tough American League wild card race this year. So yeah, if you're at the top of that pack, maybe the calculus changes, but you're not. And I'm not sure Nate Pearson is putting you over the hump 
this year, particularly when you have a lot of other starting pitching options. You know, like I, I'm not saying that Trent Thornton is going to be as good as Nate Pearson, but he's totally capable of giving you a similar start to what Nate Pearson is in this first week. Anthony Kay and Thomas Hatch in a piggyback scenario, probably not going to give you as good of a start as Nate Pearson, but they could do pretty close. You have other options. And then you just look at the realities of this season, which could be cut short at any moment. Like outbreak on two teams, outbreak on your team. Now you're not playing. MLB said like states start shutting down borders and, and shutting things down, saying we can't have this happening. We can't have the travel. If the MLB season is shut down a week in and you had Nate Pearson on your roster from opening day forward, like way to go. Now you blew a year of contractual control at the beginning of Nate Pearson's service clock and at the end. So now you actually blew two. So they're like, it, you consider all those circumstances. It's very obvious why the Blue Jays made this decision, but that doesn't mean that you have to like it. Yeah, let's put it in terms of, of wins above replacement too, right? So let's say... If the Blue Jays project Nate Pearson to be a three-win pitcher in 2020, in a full season, that means you think he's worth about a tenth of a win per start. So what's that above and beyond what you're getting from Anthony Kay? Probably, I mean, even being generous, that might be one-twentieth of a win. So you're choosing one-twentieth of a win now versus, let's say, three wins in his age 26 season or four wins if you think he's going to develop further and the calculus of of one twentieth of a win now versus three four wins in in a future season it's pretty easy you'll take the three or four wins in a future season so it, it really becomes hey are the optics going to overshadow this is there some soft factor is the relationship with Pearson going to deteriorate so far because of this I mean those are questions the Blue Jays would consider but ultimately the teams are going to look at this through the dollars and cents through the wins and losses yeah and you know as far as like how this plays in the clubhouse like I'm sure that like Blue Jays players aren't thrilled that you know one of the best pitchers in the organization isn't starting the season with them but say that you do put him on the roster and and everybody is happy about that the fact that it doesn't impact your win total enough to the point that it's going to like give you the possibility of reaching the postseason just kind of makes the entire exercise moot because you're still likely to lose a lot this season and guys are still likely to be unhappy that you're losing a lot this season you know does it impact the relationship with the player probably but that player never should have been doing you any favors anyway every player should be trying to get as much money as possible out of their organizations like every player should be trying to get the biggest paydays that they can i mean that that is the the reason why i hate this rule is because it makes it harder for nate pearson to maximize his career earnings uh but that is a nate pearson problem he's a victim of the system so it really does like come down to a don't hate the player hate the game thing Absolutely. And this is a problem that has existed for a long time in Major League Baseball. And I don't think it'll be changed in the next CBA because we've seen these sides have had chances to remove it and they haven't done it. So I think it's here to stay. Well, that is a demoralizing note to end uh, the, the news roundup with, but the second half of the podcast should hopefully be much more uplifting as uh, Ben and I go through our over-unders for the 2020 season, that and so much more when we continue on At The Letters. This is at the letters Arden Swelling, Ben Nicholson Smith, producer Christian Ryan, and it is finally time, Ben, for the 2020 edition of Over Unders. 
And I will just say up front, like over-unders are always um, an interesting exercise in how little anybody actually knows about baseball and how unpredictable baseball is and how um, ridiculous some of the things that we believe now and talk about now will seem only months in the future. But I think that in a 60 game season scenario with 30 man rosters and just chaos across baseball and a raging pandemic all around the game right now, there is even more opportunity for just insane statistical lines and absurd anomalies to play out. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, I think that there's no question in a 60-game season, trying to predict baseball is even more absurd than usual. And it, it always is a little bit of a, I guess, a temperature check on where our expectations are for the Blue Jays. I was looking back just this morning at some of the previous over-unders that we had. And this is leading into the 2016 season. It's just a reminder of how optimistic the collective view of the Blue Jays was at that point in time. Because I'm looking here at one of the over-unders we had. Combined home runs for three players, Josh Donaldson, Jose Bautista, and Edwin Encarnacion. 120 was the over-under. <laughs> so much optimism. And then Troy Tulowitzki, of all people. We set the over-under for games played for Troy Tulowitzki at 130 games. And he did it. Troy Tulowitzki <laughs> actually achieved that goal. Like, it's it's insane. Like, those were the days for the Blue Jays, right? High expectations that they met. Like, it really is reinforced by where we set those over-unders. This year, the goals will be much more humble. You will not see 120 home runs from any three Blue Jays players. You will not see a single player play in 60 games, let alone 130. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's always a fun episode, Arden. I, I think it's one that I, our listeners have told us over the years that they enjoy. I certainly enjoy it as well. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think the lines will reflect the relative lack of optimism that we have yeah. uh, in this team this year. Uh, and that begins right off the top as we go through some some pitcher over-unders here. And we begin with Hunjin Ryu, a man who has a career 298. ERA, a man who led the National League with a 2-3-2 ERA last season. We have set the ERA over under at 3-7, 3.70. So a significant handicap being given to Hunjin Ryu here as he changes leagues, faces uh, some lineups with some more home run hitters in them, plays in smaller ballparks and has to try to get ready to be as effective as he's proven that he can be right away in a short sample. So we set it at 3.70. I'm going to be the optimistic guy. I'm going to go under. I'm going to say that Hunjin Ryu will have an ERA below 3.70. I really deliberated over this one, but I'm taking the over here. I think that it is just so hard to pitch in the American League East against a very tough National League East in the American League period where you have designated hitters. And, and of course, that applies around the entire league this year. Ryu will not be facing pitchers for 10, 11% of his at-bats. It will be 0% of his at-bats that he's facing pitchers. So I think that when you combine that with a Blue Jays team that is unlikely to be above average defensively, I have a hard time taking the under here. As much as I think Ryu is a really good pitcher, I'm taking the over and I'm anticipating a, a season that's good, but not quite on that level that he showed last year. 
Yeah, I'm hoping for a lot of unearned runs is what I'm looking for here. And I'm hoping that, you know, Hunjin Ryu is used this time off to recover a little bit from like a pretty substantial innings load last year. When you look at 182 and two thirds innings for a guy who's dealt with some some physical ailments throughout his career and, and hasn't always felt his best on the mound. So I'm hoping that he's coming in healthy. He's coming in effective that these these hitters that he's facing probably haven't seen him that much um and i do also think hunch interview is really really good and i'm not sure blue jays fans understand just how good he is just yet like i think he is going to have some outings that are like really special like i think there are going to be days where it is like i am getting swing and miss up in the zone with the fastball and down with the change up and my breaking ball is coming out of nowhere and, and nobody can figure it out and i am locating and i'm getting ground balls and soft contact and these hitters just cannot square me up at all like i, I think he is going to have some outings like that and i'm hoping that i is, is going to carry him to a sub 370 era it's a really tough one. I think we set the over-under in a good place. Ryu is such a good pitcher. I'm actually really excited to watch him pitch. It'll be a lot of fun. But alas, I have him over on that one. And we'll stick with pitching for the second one. Nate Pearson, strikeouts per nine. And we have set it at 10.7, which is the exact number that Pearson struck out when he was in the minor league. So it's a lot of strikeouts, but it's a number that we know he's capable of. So with that being the over-under for Pearson strikeouts... I'm going to take the over. This might be, uh, you know, optimistic, but I think everything we've seen from Pearson in his professional career suggests to me that he is someone who can dominate and who, again, not a, not a perfect pitcher, not a perfectly refined pitcher necessarily, but I, I think he can get to that level, which would be comparable with guys like Trevor Bauer, Steven Strasburg, Luis Castillo. This is some really, really good territory. I think Pearson can get there. It would be better than Trevor Bauer in 2019, better than Louis Castillo, better than Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw, Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, Jose Barrios. I mean, we are talking like a top 10 K per nine figure among starting pitchers, uh, which is why I'm not betting on it. I'm actually going to go under on this one as much as I believe in Nate Pearson and as much as I think that he's going to be a really, really good starting pitcher in the big leagues. I mean, this is a high standard to expect from a, a rookie in his first trip through the majors. I think there are going to be days like we saw against Boston in that exhibition game where Nate Pearson still learns some things about himself, doesn't quite have his command, is his mechanics a little bit out of whack. Maybe there's a little adjustment that needs to be made. And when you make those mistakes at the big league level, as we saw, they will get punished, and I think that there will be a bit of a learning curve for him there. Um, so I, I'm going to comfortably take the under on 10.7K per nine, but I do think he's going to be very good. Well, I mean, the more batters you face, the more chances you have to strike guys out. So that's that's <laughs> one aspect here. I don't know. These are both some tough ones. Like this, that 120 home runs one, that's an easy under every time. But I mean, these are, these are pretty tough. So a couple differing opinions so far on the first two questions. Here is another tough one. Ken Giles saves, and we have set the over-under at 11.5. Ben, do you think that Ken Giles will save 12 games or more this season, or do you not? You know what? I do think he will. I do think he will. It is a tough one. Again, this is someone who battled some elbow issues last year, but when you scale that number to 162 games and of course this all requires a lot of recalibration but you're basically saying can he save games at a 32 game pace a 32 save pace i think he can do that even on a team that's likely to finish below 500 i, I think that giles will do that in his 
last chance before free agency. I think he'll be very motivated to stay on the field. He has had the chance to rest and, and restore some of that health. So I think he gets there. I'm taking the over. So here's what I think. I think the, the Blue Jays um, might win like 26 games this season. And I think that they might have a save opportunity in half of those. Uh, so that would be 13 save opportunities. And uh, I think that Ken Giles could certainly go 13 for 13 if he's able to be in all of those save opportunities. I have some question as to whether he will be, not only because of the health, as you mentioned, but also because he might get traded. And if he gets traded to a team at the deadline, there's no way of being certain that he'll be traded to be a team's closer. But I think it is more likely that he gets traded to pitch like the seventh or eighth inning setting up for a contender's closer. So uh, like that would have been the case with the Yankees last year if that deal had gone through, obviously. So um, I I just do not think that he is going to be able to get to uh, 12 saves here in this shortened season for a variety of reasons. So I'm under. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, so far disagreement on all three. And that brings us to our fourth question, sticking with the pitchers. Tanner Roark, another new addition to the Blue Jays pitching staff, Home runs allowed. We have set the over-under at 9.5. So 9.5 homers allowed in the course of the upcoming 60 games. Arden, what do you got? This is an interesting one, right? Because the uncertainty over where the Blue Jays are going to play their home schedule kind of throws us for a loop. Here are some things that that I know about Tanner Roark. An extremely league average pitcher in terms of ERA and results, which is an impressive thing to be uh, perfectly average at the highest level of baseball in the world. And a guy who takes the ball every five days, a guy who has thrown 165 innings or more each of the last four seasons, and a guy who gives up a lot of home runs, a guy who had a 1.5 home runs per nine last season, 1.2 the year before that. So considering all those factors that he's going to be taking the ball and pitching a lot and that he gives up a lot of home runs and that he's facing the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Braves and the Rays and the Phillies and the Mets, I do think that Tanner Roark will give up more than 9.5 home runs this season. I'm taking the over. All compelling arguments, Arden, but I'm going to take the under here. And to me, it's less a question of ability. I think we've seen who Tanner Roark is as a major league pitcher in the course of the last few seasons. And he has shown himself to be a very dependable, let's call it number four starting pitcher in baseball, who will allow his share of home runs. That's fine. That's part of what he offers. But this question really hinges on how many innings he is going to be pitching. So if he is going to be on the mound for an extended period of time, I think he would allow this number of home runs, but there's also the possibility of injury. We've already seen that with Chase Anderson, or there's the chance that he just has a better year than normal. Weird things happen in in a two-month burst of time. So with those two possibilities, injury or just having a good year, I'm going to comfortably take the under here on this Roark home run total. Yeah, it's really an opportunity question, right? Because if if Tanner Roark makes 12 starts this year, yeah, he's going to give up more than 10 bombs in my opinion. If he only makes five to six starts this year, it's going to be a lot harder for him to get there. But I think that just everything that we know about him and also what we know about the MLB environment this year, we touched on it earlier, ball is flying like crazy. Um, I And I, you know, he, Taylor Roark might give up like six home runs in two starts at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> so I am, uh, I'm comfortably taking the over here. We move on to the hitters. And we start here with one Bo Bichette, 
who last season in 46 games played put up 1.7 fan graphs war. Our question is that in a 60 game season, will Bo Bichette be over or under two fan graphs wins above replacement? Ben, what do you think? Well, we know he can do it. We know he has the ability because we saw that in the course of the last couple months last season. Basically, if he replicates that, that would put him close. But that's kind of my point here in taking the under, which I'm going to do. We saw Bo Bichette play out of his mind for two months last year, and he still didn't get to two war. So even though he's got a year of experience under his belt, even though he'll have the chance to play in slightly more games this season, he would have to sustain that pace, that 930 OPS, playing good defense at shortstop, I believe Bo Bichette is a really good player. I think he he's the best player, the best all-around player on the Toronto Blue Jays right now. But expecting two war in a 60-game season, I just have to take the under here. You know, Ben, Fangraphs has a really cool tool that they have put up just for this 2020 season under their leaderboards. It is a 60-game span leaderboard in which you can look back at prior seasons and see some of the best 60-game spans that have been put up in every season of Major League Baseball since 1974. So I can take the 2019 60-game spans and order them and see that there are like a number of players who are able to put up as many as three, three and a half, in some cases four, wins above replacement in 2019. I can also see some of the players who are able to put up two wins in 60 games in 2019 among them. Carson Kelly, Tim Anderson, John Bertie for Blue Jays diehards who remember that name. I think Bo Bichette can do it. I think that he has come into this season in exceptional form. He has been crushing his team's pitching throughout intra-squad games. I think he is going to take some serious step forwards this year. I think his like true breakout and Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s true breakout likely won't come until their third season in the league. Like we kind of see that with, you know, some other young players when, um, you know, you look at a guy like, like Bellinger kind of broke out in that third season and like Altuve and Yelich, like usually that is when like you truly do become elite. But I think it is well within Bo Bichette's possibilities to put up two wins in this season. I think he'll be better at shortstop than he was last year and, and pile up a bit more defensive war than he did. So give me the over on two for Bo Bichette. All right. You got the over. And and I agree he can do it. And I agree that some players will do it, even some unexpected players. But I don't know if I want to bet that Bo Bichette definitively will do it. It's uh it's gonna be fun to watch either way. But that leads us to Vlad Guerrero Jr., of course, one of the other Jay's young stars and of course we need to have a couple of Vlad Jr. over-unders not quite as many as last year when I think we had a whole section devoted to Vlad Jr. <laughs> yeah we it was did basically a, yeah it was, a, it was a Vlad Jr. over-unders but this year we do have a couple starting with his OPS and we just went to right to zips here the projections system at fan graphs and plucked the OPS from there so it's 841 I'm gonna take the over Arden what do you got? No surprise uh, that you are taking the over. Um, and I think that uh, absolutely Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is is capable of that over. Uh, I'm going to bet 
on the under, just based on what we have seen so far through intra-squad games. Vlad has not looked great at the plate, in my opinion. And like, it is impossible to know what you can really take away from intra-squad games. Like, if spring training stats are meaningless, like intra-squad game stats are meaningless minus, you know, like they are extra meaningless. So it's entirely possible that Vlad comes out in the first couple weeks of the season is just like tearing the cover off the ball. But we have still seen a lot of ground balls from him during camp so far. We have seen that the conditioning has not improved as much as the Blue Jays would have liked it to. And we're going to see him go through this this transition across the diamond this year, which I think is going to be more difficult than a lot of people are, are giving it credit for. So, you know, again, I am betting on like the third year breakout for the young Blue Jays stars. And I think that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will be better this season than he was last offensively but i'm taking the under at 841 man i just i think one of these years flat jr is going to break out in a huge way and i i thought it was going to be last year now i think it's going to be this year I, i agree the ground balls are an issue but this guy is just so strong he's so powerful i think we're going to see a lot of homers from him I think we're going to see a lot of big offensive numbers from Vladdy. And if I have to go down, I'm happy to go down betting the over on Vlad Guerrero Jr. The thing that we haven't quite seen with him at the big league level has been the walks, right? Like throughout the minor leagues, he walked more than he struck out. And that hasn't quite translated to the big league level just yet. And look, there it was like a hard strike zone for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. last year. Like there were some calls that very much did not go his way. And I think that actually led to frustration in a lot of cases. And that probably led to him expanding at times when when he didn't need to. So I, I think that he just needs to gain some of that respect from umpires and start getting those calls to really unleash the walk potential, which would really goose the uh, the OPS number for you there. Let's stick with Vlad Jr. here. Speaking of that defensive uh, switch in positions, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to play first base this year. It is harder to commit errors at first base than it is at third base, but we are still going to bet on that. And uh, I am wondering, Ben, over under, errors at first base for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The line is set at three and a half. And I'm taking the under here. I'm not saying that Vlad Jr. is going to be Mark Grace over there. Pick your defensively skilled first baseman. I think he has a lot to learn. I think it's a position that's probably more difficult than people assume. But I think the mistakes will not necessarily show up on the scorecard in that way. It might be throwing to the wrong base. It might be not being able to pick up a a throw in the dirt in the way that we saw from Justin Smoke so many times where he would save infielders' errors. I wouldn't be counting on Vlad Jr. doing that with the same frequency, but those get noted as throwing errors. If, If you skid one in the dirt, it doesn't go to the first baseman. So typically, the errors that you see from a first baseman are throwing and throwing wildly, and Vlad has a pretty good arm. So I'm not saying that he's going to get through the season unscathed, but I'll take the over. I think it ends up more like two or three than it does above that. I think we could see some some errors on balls that are hit to him as well would be the other uh, category there. And, and I'm going to take the over here. I think that it'll make more than three errors at first base this year. As you alluded to, this isn't going to be as easy as some people think. Like the ironic thing about the defensive switch from third to first base is that now Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is more involved defensively they're obviously different 
responsibilities, but he is going to be handling the baseball more often now as a first baseman than he was as a third baseman. Um, working against me here is the fact that he might DH a bunch of days, so you're not going to have many opportunities to commit errors as a designated hitter. So that, that would be working against me, but I, I do think that we'll see more than three and a half for Vlad. And this is specifically at first base. You know, if we see him at third, then, uh, you know, we, we thought about putting an over-under on his third base playing time. I don't think either one of us expects him there, but that would not count against this tally. Joe Panic, a utility guy who probably will play some third base, probably will play all around the diamond. We have set the over-under in true at the letters tradition here around one of the utility players on the roster. I think we've had <laughs> we had Eric Sogard last year. I think we've done Ryan Goins at one point. But the utility question is always, how many positions will this player play? And for Joe Panic, we are setting the over-under at 4.5 for non-DH positions. So DH, we're talking in the field here. So 4.5, that's a lot of positions in a short period of time. Arden, what do you think? So Joe Panic has played 645 games at the big league level. 644 of them have been played at second base. Yes. <laughs> so we are expecting Joe Panic to play a lot more positions this year than he has to this point in his six-year MLB career. So I am obviously expecting him to play some second base. I am expecting him to play some shortstop behind Bo Bichette. I'm expecting him to play some third base. I'm expecting that there will be games where he just ends up at first base because Charlie Montoyo's emptied his bench or he's pinch hit, played, tried to play platoons, crazy things have happened. Remember, we saw Brandon Drury at, at first base a whole bunch of times last season. So that's a fourth position. The line is four and a half. Do I think he'll play a fifth? Yes, because I think that at some point we will see Joe Panic in either left or right field or possibly even both. So I am taking the over on 4.5 defensive positions played for Joe Panic. Man, only 60 games in the season. There's not a lot of chances out there for him to get that <laughs> over. I'm, I'm taking the under here. I just, I think in a full season, he might get there. I think he might. But in this shortened season, I, I do think we'll see him all over the place. There's no question he's setting a career high in positions played. He'll play second, he'll play short, he'll play third. I think he'll play some left. And then it's a question of will he play right field or first base? And to me, banking on that gives me a little bit of pause. So I'm taking the under on the panic positions played. The only position Joe Panic has played other than second base to this point in his career is first base, Ben. That's right. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm I'm willing to assume on a team with Rowdy Telez and Vlad and Travis Shaw that they get to number four in the depth chart. A lot of gloves in Joe Panic's bag. That's all that I know for this season. Next, the final hitter question. Teoscar Hernandez, games played in center field. Another defensive position games played question that only like uber dorks like Ben and I are really interested in. Teoscar Hernandez is not going to be the everyday center fielder this season. He's not going to start the season in center field. Randall Grichuk is. But we do still expect that Teoscar Hernandez is going to see some time in center field. So we've set the over-under of games played in center field for Teoscar Hernandez at 14 and a half. Where do you fall, Ben? I'm taking the over here, not because I expect Teoscar to return to center field on a permanent basis, but I think when you look at Grichuk needing some days off his feet and the possibility, again, of an injury, I think they're going to use Teoscar in center field, whether it's Grichuk at DH, whether Grichuk 
you know, doesn't feel as comfortable in center field. I do think we see Teoscar in center, and I will take the over on this one. Yeah, I'm going to take the over as well because I just think he's going to find his way into center field in at least 15 games this year for a a variety of reasons. And we kind of goosed some of these over-unders, Ben, if I can pull back the curtain a little bit so that there was more disagreement between us because like that's our 10th over-under and we disagreed on the first nine. So (laughs) (laughs) that was purposeful because I don't think that anybody wants to hear us just like agree on everything. So and and that makes that puts some stakes into the game here, makes it more interesting. But this will be the first one that we agree on. I think the over on 14 and a half for Teoscar. I like it. All right, let's move on to some team predictions here. So looking at the entire roster of Blue Jays pitchers in 2020, how many of these pitchers will get at least one war? And we're going by fan graphs here whenever we say war for these predictions. So how many pitchers will surpass that threshold? We have set the over under at 1.5 pitchers with at least one war. What do you think? I think Hunjin Ryu will put up one win above replacement. I'm not convinced that Nate Pearson will have the opportunity to get to one win above replacement in this shortened season and with very likely being held down at, at the beginning of the year. And I'm not convinced that Ken Giles is going to be a Blue Jay for the entirety of the season, which I think would prevent him from putting up one bin, one win above replacement. And I cannot find anybody else on this roster who I think is going to be able to get there. So I'm going to have to go with the under. I think that only one Blue Jay pitcher will put up one win above replacement, and I think it'll be Hunjin Ryu. I do think Ryu gets there. I also think someone else gets there, and I'm not sure who. It could be Pearson. I, I do believe Pearson's going to have a good year. It could be someone unexpected. I mean, it could be Wilmer Font. It could be Ken Giles. It could be Trent Thornton. You never know what can happen in a short season. I don't think it'll be a ton of players, but I think enough Blue Jays pitchers will perform. They have a better pitching staff this year. They have enough candidates to to potentially come through and contribute in this way. So I'm going over, and, and I think that we'll see two, maybe even three guys with at least one war. Watch Thomas Hatch come up and like just blow the doors off in like five starts over the back half of the season and lead this team in war. Exactly. Rafael Dolis, like you never, it, it could be anyone. And, you know, again, this is probably one of those questions where, you know, when we look back at this and, and we look at the names that we were considering, we might kind of laugh at it in hindsight, but it just takes one other guy beyond Ryu to get to that one war spot. Yeah, we might look back at this and laugh because none of them got to one win above replacement. <laughs> but we'll, right. We'll see. Let's stay with the pitching staff here uh, and let's use a, a much more traditional stat than wins above replacement. We're going to look at pitcher wins here. The good old pitcher win, it will never go out of style. The Blue Jays leader in pitcher wins, whether that is Hunjin Ryu, whether that is Trent Thornton, whether that is somebody unexpected, will that individual have more than five and a half wins on the season or fewer? So the Blue Jays leader in pitcher wins. The over-under is set at five and a half Ben, I am taking the under. Where do you stand? Well, it's funny looking back at 2019 because this would have been a really touch and go over under, <laughs> even for a full season. The the Blue Jays barely had pitchers uh, surpass that 5.5. Trent Thornton, Marcus Stroman, Daniel Hudson, they all got six wins last year. That, that tied for the team league. This year, I, I've got to take the under. I just don't think that any one individual pitcher is going to win six games. You know, they're not going to win 10% of the team's games. You scale that to 162, you're looking at a 16-game winner, and I just don't see that happening. 
Daniel Hudson won six games for this team last year, Ben. That's right. He, he <laughs> sure did. And what a year it was. He, he was handsomely rewarded for that. Didn't he close out the World Series? That was a quite a year for Daniel Hudson. Marcus Stroman won six games for this team last year. Sam Gavilio won four. Brock Stewart won four games. Like I, you, you just you caused <laughs> me to open up the stats from last year, and it is quite a trip down memory lane looking at that. So yeah, no, I'm I'm on the under as well. Like I just I just don't think the Blue Jays are going to win <laughs> that many times this year. You know, I would put them at like 26 is probably where if if like gun to my head if I had to make a prediction, I think the Blue Jays will win 26 times this year. And yeah, I just don't think that one individual is going to have more than 5.5 so we were both under on that one all right let's take it to team era so we have set the over under at 4.5 here for the team era last year let's see the team era for 2019 was 4.79 so we are building in some built-in improvement here i think we both agree this pitching staff is better they have a couple really significant additions in pearson in ryu and some really solid additions in guys like roark and anderson 4.5, though, I mean, to me, that is still a lot to ask when you look at the caliber of offenses in the American League East. The Yankees and Red Sox are so good. The National League East is still tough. I'm taking the over on this one. Yeah, I'm also going over. 4.5 ERA would essentially be league average. And while they have made those improvements to the pitching staff that you indicated, I still don't think that they're an above average staff, particularly not with the quality of opposition that they're going to be facing. Like if the Blue Jays had more games against the Orioles, um, if they had series against the Kansas City Royals and Detroit Tigers, I might feel differently. But realistically, 75% of the time this year, the Blue Jays are going to be playing a pretty good offense. So I think that while, you know, I don't think we're going to see a five ERA from this team staff, I do think it's going to be over four and a half then. Yeah, it is going to be a better staff. I'm confident in saying that. We don't know where the exact numbers will lie, but it it, it will be a better staff. Still, I'm comfortable taking the over on this one. Let's move on to the offense. Blue Jays with double-digit home runs. We have set the over-under at 5.5. This is an interesting one to consider in a 60-game season. How many Blue Jays are going to get to double-digit home runs? I'm taking the over. I am betting like on all things home run this year, just from the way the ball is flying um, and, and just the, the style of baseball that I think we are going to see. I think that Randall Grichuk, Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Rowdy Tellez, and Kevin Biggio at least can each get to double-digit home runs. So that gives me my six. Uh, and that's why I'm on the over here. And I didn't even mention like a Lourdes Gurriel Jr. or a Travis Shaw or a Danny Jansen who could sneak in there as well. Yeah, any of those guys could do it. I mean, it is, again, a couple good weeks. You're already up to five and then you chip away. You get to 10, it's possible. But at the same time, I mean, 10 home runs in a couple of months that's a 27 home run pace and that's a decent amount of homers. I mean, in this day and age, 27 home runs means something very different than, than it did say 10 years ago or, or certainly 30 years ago, but it's still something. So I'm taking the under here. I, I'm probably more confident in this one than I am in a lot of my picks to this point in, in the over unders. I had really had to, to deliberate on some in this case, I'm pretty comfortable taking the under. I, I don't think six guys are going to get to that point. 
Zips is on your side. Zips has uh, Grichuk at 11 and Hernandez at 10. And then it's got three players at nine. Vlad, Travis Shaw, and Rowdy Tellez. It has Bo Bichette at just seven, which feels low to me. Biggio as well at just seven. And Lourdes Gurriel Jr. At, ju- at just seven. Like, I think those three are low to me. Um, I think the way the ball is flying, and I think the you know just the offensive approach that we've seen from the Blue Jays, um, I'm actually pretty confident in my selection here which is kind of interesting that we are both confident in our varying selections. Uh, it's going to be interesting to revisit revisit this one. All right, bring us home, Ben. All right, last one for this section. Team wins. You've already tipped your hands. We have set the over-under at 27.5. And by the way, I've seen some odds makers. I mean, you, you get, I'm sure, some of these same emails that I do, Arden, and you have the predictions from odds makers basically trying to get us to tweet out uh, their odds for the <laughs> unsuccessfully, season. Unsuccessfully, yeah. Yeah, unsuccessfully. But you see them, and I've seen a couple set the Jays at 27.5. So this is a very fair over-under, one that people in Vegas are betting on as we speak Sounds like you would take the under, and I have to agree with you. What is your reasoning for taking the under on this one? If you want my reasoning, you just like replay the first like 45 minutes of this podcast, I guess. <laughs> for a million reasons, I think the Blue Jays are going to be under. Strength of schedule, not having a home ballpark, like essentially being on a 60-game road trip, true talent just being what it is. I just do not have faith in the Blue Jays to win more than 27 games this season. I would say they're at 26. Like, what would you say is your predicted win total? Yeah, I think 26. Like, I don't think they're... Honestly, I might take 27, to be honest. Like, I can still get to 27 and and be under safely. I don't think they're a bad team. I think they're a much improved team. They're going to be way more fun to watch. But, you know, it's just... It's tough to be 500 when you're facing teams that are that good. So, I'll, I'll say 27, slightly more optimistic than you. But still you know, below the, the threshold of, of 500 when you consider the competition they're up against. Okay, so those are our first 14 over-unders. From here, Ben and I have each devised three of our own that the other individual is not aware of, that we did not tell the other person about. For the first 14, we emailed back and forth about them. We moved the lines so that there would be some disagreement, so that you know it would just be a bit more interesting. But now we each have three surprises for uh, our fellow At The Lairs co-host. I'll kick it off. Even throughout the recording of this podcast, I still like debated where I wanted to go with this one. Blue Jays, hitters and pitchers, Ben, both, with 60-plus strikeouts. So that would be pitchers, who strike out 60 hitters and hitters who strike out 60 times. I want to know how many of those individuals you think are going to be on the 2020 Blue Jays. I am setting the over under at four and a half. Under. Yeah, I'm going under. I like this one. And I think you could certainly see a lot of guys getting close to this number. But for me, it is really tough to do on the pitching side, especially if the Jays are being cautious coming out of the gate. And I think they'll have some guys do it on the hitting side, on the offensive side, like Randall Gritchuk, Teoscar Hernandez, they're prime candidates, even Kevin Biggio. I mean, those three might get you there, but I, I'm still taking the under. Like I said, I'm still debating it, which is why I think that it's actually a really well set over under for me. Because like I said, I could see Randall Gritchuk or Teoscar Hernandez striking out 60 times each in 60 games. I could see Hunjin Ryu striking out 60 dudes. I could see Trent Thornton striking out 60 guys. 
I could see Kevin Biggio striking out 60 times. I could see Rowdy Tellez striking out 60 times. I could see Nate Pearson striking out 60 batters if he only makes like nine starts. Sure. So I'm going to go over. Screw it. Nice. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go over just to, I'll say like my mind tells me to go under, but my heart says go over. So I'm going to follow my heart and I'm going to go over and say that there will be more than four and a half Blue Jays with 60 strikeouts on their record this year. Love it. We have very different scorecards so far. And hopefully hopefully, a lot of you are following along, keeping track of, of your own predictions as we do this. Definitely tweet them at us. I will also uh, shout out to all of the listeners who responded to my request for ideas. They definitely, I didn't necessarily incorporate all of them word for word, but thanks to everybody who sent in their suggestions because I definitely incorporated that. And in fact, I am going to take one of those Twitter suggestions Word for word, this is from Darren. I liked it a lot. So Arden, this is the over-under I'm going to present to you. It is a combination games played. How many will the group of Jordan Groshans, Alejandro Kirk, Austin Martin, Simeon Woods-Richardson, and Alec Manoa play for the 2020 Toronto Blue Jays? So the over-under for games played by that entire group is set at 0.5. Groshans, Kirk, Martin, Woods Richardson and Manoa, right? That's right. Yeah. Under. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it would be fun. I am hoping for an over here, but I have to take the under. As much as these prospects are the future, I don't see them making an appearance in 2020. Yeah, this was another one where like my heart was like, go over, go over, go over. But I know I can't. I can't possibly. It's clearly under to me. My second surprise over under. Charlie Montoyo ejections. I have set the over-under at 1.5, Ben. Interesting. It's a low set. It's a low line, man. 1.5. In order for the over to come through, he would only have to be tossed twice in the 60-game season. I'm taking the under. If you want to go on the over, then <laughs> then you'll be uh, you'll be well positioned to root for manager conflict. Here's one of my reasons for taking the under. Last year, Charlie Montoyo did not show himself to be someone who's particularly inclined to get an umpire's faces. And then this year, like it's going to be discouraged in a, in a world of social distancing. Like you're not going to be able to get close. Now, of course, you can still insult somebody from six feet away and you can still do lots of things to get ejected without without getting in an umpire's face. But yeah, I, I think it's I, I'm taking the under here. Yeah, no, I'm under too. Just Charlie just doesn't get run. Like maybe he'll uh, evolve as his managerial career continues, but uh, he was run twice last year in a 162 game season. Yeah, I mean he just doesn't have it, and I think there's going to be fewer this year because you're right. I think there's going to be fewer disagreements now. If John Gibbons was the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, <laughs> oh, you know he'd get tossed. I mean, this would be a very poorly set line. Yeah, exactly. So I have the list of like manager ejections all time in front of me. John Gibbons is a top 20 manager all time in getting thrown out. Of course he is. Top Legends. 20, yeah. d- dude, in the history of the game. <laughs> <laughs> we, we saw a lot of them, that's for sure. He, he's been thrown out more than Billy Martin, more than Tommy Lasorda, more than Ned Yost, <laughs> Mike Sosha. Mike Sosha has been manager of the Angels for like three decades. <laughs> Gibbons yeah. was thrown out more than him. It's crazy. Yeah, it it really is. More than Tito? He had a flair for it. 
there were weeks in Gibby's managerial career where it would go suspension, ejection, ejection. (laughs) He would just be like out of commission the entire week, just watching in the office, having a glass of red wine. More than Casey Stengel, more than Joe Girardi, more than Buck Showalter, more than Davey Johnson, more than Bud Black, more than Don Mattingly. Like I can go on, man. Like Gibby was, is an all timer (laughs) getting thrown out of games. Oh my God. So yeah, I know we're, we're both under on the Charlie ejections. Like he might not get thrown out once this year. Like, I think that there might be people on his staff who get thrown out more than him. Oh yeah. I could see that. Like I could see Hudge getting thrown out more than Charlie. Pete, if the pitching goes sour. Yeah. Watch out. Watch out. All right, so my next over-under is centered around Kevin Biggio, who, of course, had great plate discipline last year as a rookie. And the question boils down to how well can he repeat that skill? So last year, he had Major League Baseball's lowest chase rate. It was 15.8%. He barely expanded his zone at all. My over-under is this. 0.5 players who chase fewer pitches than Kevin Biggio in 2020 and I'm going to put a plate appearance restriction here he has to get 150 plate appearances for this to count otherwise it's just not enough but assuming he gets 150 plate appearances will anyone chase fewer pitches than Kevin Biggio so it's basically Kevin Biggio or the field is what it comes down to um in terms of chase rate in the 2020 season like it is just too too tempting for me to take the field and to think that somebody in baseball will chase less often than Kevin Biggio does. So I'm I'm going to take the over on this one, my friend. That is fair. And yet I am going to take the under. I'm going to bank on Kevin Biggio's plate discipline as a repeatable skill and one that might even get better in 2020 than it was in 2019. It is a type of skill that you would expect to get better as his career continues. There are other individuals in this game who also have very good eyes. Like, like I, I could see Alex Bregman leading in that category. I could see Mike Trout, Joey Votto, Mookie Betts, another guy who probably doesn't get enough credit for the, the eye that he has at the plate. I got to take the field on that one. All right, my final surprise question. Blue Jays outfielders used in the 60-game 2020 season. How many individuals will play in the outfield for the Toronto Blue Jays. I have set the over under at 10 and a half. Wow. 10.5. All right. I am going to think out loud here. So we have obvious answers in Gritchuk. We have Lourdes. We have Teoscar. They will all play. Alford will play. Derek Fisher will play. Panic will play. I think Biggio will play. I think Jonathan Davis will play. Now, that's eight players right there. Now, Drury probably going to play in the outfield. I'm taking the under on this. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I could see it going over, and I maybe I'm missing someone really obvious. I mean, conceivably, I don't know, you see Travis Shaw out there for a game. I'm taking the under, though. Where do you land? I'm going to go over. I think that Billy McKinney will also play the outfield. And I think that at some point we will see something weird (laughs) because weird stuff happens in baseball and like some combination of injuries and or, you know, just like long game or what have you, you know, we'll see a spot where it's like, hey, 
Josh Palacios has been called up. Or, hey, yep. Forrest Wall is here now. Or, hey, it's Andy Burns. It's Santiago Espinal. So I'm going to take the over on 10 and a half. Wow. You're almost talking me into that. It's too because, late. You're on the record. Yeah, no. I, I, let's just say, uh, academically speaking, you're almost talking me into it because any of those things could happen. You could have a pitcher play in a weird situation. But still, it's only 60 games. How many outfielders do you need? <laughs> well, that's the push-pull here, right? It's only 60 games. Like, you would expect, like, you could have, like, only six guys play the outfield, right? Like, in your ideal world, Joe Panic is not playing the outfield. You know, perfect world, like, Brandon Drury is not running out there. But these are the Toronto Blue Jays, and they do not exist in a perfect world. That is for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. All right, I'm on, on the under on that side. You're on the over. I have one more over under for you. And this one is zooming out beyond the team on the field a little bit. As I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember, Mark Shapiro is in the final year of his contract. And that storyline has obviously and understandably slipped into the background as all of these COVID developments have unfolded. But there will come a time that the Blue Jays and their team president have to decide if they are going to continue in this arrangement. So my over-under is this. Over-under 0.5 contract extensions for Mark Shapiro by the final day of the season. So that, I believe, is September 27th. By September the 27th, that final Sunday of the regular season, will Mark Shapiro have an extension to remain in place with the Toronto Blue Jays? I don't like the final day of the season qualifier and i don't like it one bit because <laughs> <laughs> i could see it very easily being announced on like october 2nd my understanding and i have not seen his contract my understanding is that it would run through till the end of the calendar year so like any point after what is it september 29th when they finish up it could be announced so really it's basically will mark Sparrow contract extension be announced in the next eight to ten weeks is really what this is right to be super clear because as as our longtime listeners know we we mm. sometimes have, have gotten into the weeds on this i'm not saying will it be announced because the blue jays often don't announce these things but i'm saying will it be reported will it be out there you know publicly agreed upon that this has happened from you or shy davidi or ken rosenthal or john Heyman? I'm not saying it has to be announced. I'm saying will an extension be in place as far as the public knowledge surrounding the team? I'm going to go under, although I do believe an extension will occur before the end of like the 2020 calendar year. Do I think that it will occur in the next eight weeks or do I think that it will be you know reported in the next eight weeks? I'm going to bet against that because it could just as easily happen in October in November, or even in December. So I'm going to go under. Unfortunately, I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping, I was really hoping to get you on that one and to create a little disagreement, but I agree. I think I could easily see him staying in Toronto, although our history from five years ago reminds us that that is certainly not a sure thing until the GM or team president has an agreement in place and on paper. But I do expect that this is a place that Mark Shapiro has enjoyed working and, and still has work to do before the work here is done for the Toronto Blue Jays. I think that there would be mutual interest. But with everything going on in the season, I don't, don't think that's a front burner priority. 
I think it's more likely to be resolved in October than it is by the final weekend of the season. Yeah, it would have been more interesting if you had made it December 31st, although then I think we both would have taken the over. So either way, we were always going to be in agreement on this question. That's right. Um, so, uh, that wraps up the, uh, oh, wait, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. There's a, wait, there's a 21st question on the, that was, oh, I thought we only did 20. What's the, all right. 21st question on here. Oh, Kevin Pilar OBP. What you thought we do an over unders without Kevin Pilar OBP. Of course not. It is a tradition. The honorary 21st question over under Ben Kevin Pilar's on base percentage. 279.5 is the line on the over under Kevin Pillar OBP, a uh, borderline insulting line that we have set this at. Ben, where do you fall? Over or under 279.5 Kevin Pillar on base percentage? Well, I think our longtime listeners will know where I'm going on this one. It is mm. an at the letters tradition to have Kevin Pillar's on base percentage on here, and it is an at the letters tradition for me to take the under, which I will do comfortably on this 279.5. Major League pitching is really hard to hit. And I think Kevin Pillar has had a great career, 32nd round pick, done some great things for himself, made some great catches, been a part of some great teams, but a great on base percentage man, he is not. And so I am taking the under here. A career 296 OBP for Kevin Pillar, Ben. Last season at the Major League level, 287. OBP, including a 293 OBP with the Giants, who he spent 156 games with last year and hit 21 bombs. I'm going over. I got to go over, man. I just will never bet against Kevin Bellars on base percentage. One of these years, he's going to come through for me. Hey, look, it's 60 game season, man. Like crazy things going to happen. We've seen him get real hot. I think it's actually more likely that, that it comes through for me this year in this small of a sample. So all he's got to do is put up a 280 on base percentage. Like I am very confident that he could do that. Man. Well, you know what? I'm looking at your picks and I think I think your picks are really reasonable. I think you've made some really tough calls on the on the other side of the ones that I made. I don't think I ever leave the over unders podcast with a feeling of extreme confidence that my picks are going to go well. But I don't know, man. This year, like I think it's going to be really close. I certainly don't ever leave over under with <laughs> confidence. Uh, track record uh, would suggest that I uh, I really shouldn't, but I, there is definitely more room for like crazy stuff to happen this year. Um, which, like, ironically, I didn't actually bet on as many crazy things this year as I normally do. Uh, I guess I'm getting conservative in my old age. That's right. Watch <laughs> out. We'll recap these uh, not that long from now because the season's weeks. only going to be. <laughs> yeah, right? Like the season's going to be over in a few sleeps. So uh, hopefully enjoy this year's over-unders. We'll be recapping them at the end of the season. Thanks to our producer, Christian Ryan, for uh, stitching together what is probably one of the more challenging episodes to edit in the ATL calendar. Thanks to Ben Nicholson-Smith, obviously. My name is Arden Swelling. Blue Jays baseball, regular season baseball that counts towards the standing begins in a matter of hours and we will be there throughout the season to recap everything that happens as uh this vagabond homeless nomadic team tries to navigate its way through the strangest season of baseball any of them has ever played so for christian for ben i'm arden thanks for listening this has been at the letters